Uh, why don't you go ahead and be seated? This reading is really long, and it's a little different. I want to explain it. Uh, first, I'd have to say that you're not going to really be able to follow along with me if you're reading from the bulletin. So if you have a handout, that's how you'll follow along with me. There are still a few left over on the table, so if you don't have one, you might be able to get one. I'll time you. Okay, first I want to explain that I have altered a few words in this handout. You'll see that I've lined things out and put in a different word. It's not that the original means what I'm putting down. I just wanted to stick with the militaristic theme uh, that Paul introduces, and I think it's appropriate. I don't think I'm really going out of bounds by doing what I'm doing. And so uh, we're going to read four different portions of Timothy, and they're in reverse order. So we'll start at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, then we'll read 14 and 15, then we'll go to chapter 2, read 24 to 26, and 3 to 4. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the soldier of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from basic training you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And a soldier of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our minds and uh, our imaginations to see and uh, clearly see what it is that Paul is sharing with us and why he's chosen these metaphors that he has. We ask you now, Lord, to please be with us, have your Holy Spirit to awaken in our hearts and in our minds a love for you and a love for your word and a desire to please you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. I believe Paul used the military metaphor extensively in his letters. And I believe he did so because it was the life he was living. Uh, he was living the life of a soldier, and he wants us to live lives of soldiers. And so that's why he uses these military metaphors, I believe. And so this, these four sections of text that I've provided, you can see that if you have an outline, I've labeled each of these sections. And you can preface each of these words with war. War weapons. War training. War conduct. And war endurance. That could also read war hardships. So our sermon will walk through this now, this is a little bit different. Uh, sermons are typically either expository or a form of survey where you're doing a topical sermon and pulling together from various parts of Scripture. 
And this one is a little bit of both. It's kind of a hybrid. And uh, so I, I, it's sometimes perhaps not wise to not do expository sermons because uh, people do that to cheat. People do that to avoid portions of Scripture that they don't want to preach on. Uh, male headship is one that is widely avoided in our day. And yet, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing it because I really wanted to pull text from uh, two chapters, and I didn't want to read all that, and I'm not really going to walk through all that. It's just these snippets. So first, weapons. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the soldier of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we know that God breathed Scripture into being. This is the only reference in the Bible that speaks specifically of God breathing the Bible into existence. There are millions, tens of millions of books in existence, which means that there's an author for every one of those books. And yet, this is the bestseller in the world, has been so for quite a long time. God is the author. God's only authored one book. This is it. And so you have a lot of competition in the world when you go to want to read something. There are many things that might distract you from reading the Bible. It's hard to categorize God's Word. You can't just fit it in one genre. It's poetry, it's history. Some might say it's fiction. We don't. There's allegory in there. There's prophecy in there. It's beautiful. So much of the Word is beautiful. And you would think that unbelievers would at least appreciate some of the beauty that is found in Scripture but it is really hard to get them past the fact that it is written by someone they don't like. It's hard for me to introduce people to books where they don't like the author or they don't really understand the pedigree of the author. Try to talk Dr. Kaiser into reading a book that he doesn't know the pedigree of the author of. He, he, he values his reading time too much to waste time on stuff that he doesn't appreciate. So. The Bible can be exciting, it can be informing, it can be life-altering, definitely profitable, in parts profound, yet anybody who's attempted to read through the Bible often dies out in Leviticus and Numbers, don't you? There are many skeletons strewn through Leviticus and Numbers. It's hard to get through it. We know that. It's not a secret. We can't hide it. But yet, God says all Scripture is profitable. And so we slog through, hoping that God might give us some nugget on that path that convinces us that this is worthwhile. And then you do. If you have been a Christian for a few years, and you've not yet read through the Bible, shame on you. You 
are a babe in Christ. If you've been a Christian for years and you haven't made it a practice of reading through the Bible at least every two or three years, shame on you. You are still a babe in Christ. This is the only book that God has written. It's the only book that he wants you reading. Now, you could go read others. He's not saying no. But this is the one that he wants you reading. And not just reading. You have to study it. The Bible is meant to be studied. Now, it can be read. It can be enjoyed. I, I know uh, two young people who are attempting to get through the Bible in 30 days. That is a tall order. Roughly, that's about two and a half hours a day of reading that's required to get through the Bible in 30 days. But it would give you such a panorama to have accomplished that goal because it gives you this rapid summarization of all that God has written. You're not going to come away from a 30-day reading of the Bible with a full understanding of it. It just can't happen. But you can at least have that impressionist understanding of what the Bible's all about. If you've never been up in the middle of the night reading the Bible such that you sense God's presence in those wee hours, shame on you. You are missing out. I think reading the Bible in the middle of the night is probably about one of the greatest events you can accomplish, that you can participate in. We don't typically want to be up in the middle of the night, and yet God gets us up in the middle of the night. We didn't get up in the middle of the night even to perhaps read his book, but we find ourselves with nothing better to do than read his book. And so we do. And yet, even with that bad attitude, even with that lack of a plan, God can come and meet with you. And there is an intimacy there that you just don't get otherwise. Hebrews 11.6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Whenever I speak with people that don't know the Lord, this is often what I quote. And so I say, if you really are an agnostic, that means you don't know there isn't a God. And you're not saying there isn't a God. You're saying you don't know God. That's what you're saying when you say you're an agnostic. And that's what most people say. And that's because they've learned that if you tell them that they tell you they're an atheist, that you go after them like they're raw meat. So see, they want you to go away. They don't want you bothering them. But see, when people tell me they're an agnostic, that to me is opportunity. Because then is the opportunity where you could say, well, what you're telling me then is you don't know God exists. But you think he might. And it forces their hand. Are they going to choose to go with what you just said? Or are they going to go towards atheism? And then you've got them either way. Because if you've been reading your Bible, if you've been skilled in this, then you know how to address atheists. So, we diligently seek God through his word. 
When you're up in the middle of the night and you pray, you might be going right back to sleep, might you? And so if you're up in the middle of the night reading and praying, it's less easy to go back to sleep because now you're in a conversation. Now you're talking to God, and he often comes to you. That's when he likes to talk to his children, his soldiers, in the middle of the night. And, the, and this says that we will be then complete and thoroughly equipped if only we know this. Without knowing this, it's not enough that it sits on your shelf. It's not enough that you love it. You must read it. You must be diligent in the study of it. Then you will be complete and thoroughly equipped. You don't need a doctorate in philosophy or law or medicine or anything like that. What you need is what Jim Elliott wanted. He wanted an AUG degree. He wanted to be approved unto God. And that's the degree he was seeking when he was asked at Wheaton what degree he was going for. He said, I'm going for an AUG. So do you want an AUG? If you want an AUG, then start reading this if you're not. Uh, I remember talking to a young man a few years ago, a member of this church, and he was by that time in his mid to late 20s, and he had never read through the Bible. And I said, shame on you. I encouraged him. I didn't just berate him. But yet, shame on anyone who claims to be a Christian all their life and hasn't read through the Bible yet by the time they're in their mid-20s. That's just sad. So now, Ephesians 6 describes our armor, right? Our armor. Belt of... No, nobody knows? Belt of truth. Breastplate of... Helmet of... Very good. Shield of... Very good. What's on your feet? Sandals. Very good. Gospel. Very good. Thank you. Brave people. I love this church. Brave people. Okay. What is lacking? What did I not mention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's the sword? What's the sword? Here's the sword, right? What are all of those other pieces of our armor? They're all defensive, aren't they? All defensive. That's what armor is. It protects us. So you put on the armor to protect you. But how are you going to storm the gates of hell? <laughs> that doesn't work. We're not going to batter down the gates of hell with our bodies, with our armor. You take the sword. You defeat those on the walls of the gates of hell. You attack the gates of hell. So see, this is our offensive weapon. If you want to do damage to the enemy, you must know it. You must study it. You must read it. No excuses. Absolutely none. Is wearing armor easy? No. I bet it gets stinky, too. So you have to clean your armor. It's not enough to put it on and take it off, put it on and take it off. Any of you that have ever, ever had a kid that is in some form of exercise gym class knows what happens if they just put all that junk back in the gym bag on and off, on and off, on and off. You don't want to go anywhere near that thing. So see, armor must be cared for. So that means all of these things we've mentioned, they all must be cared for. 
and you care for it by understanding what it is first and foremost, how it's used, using it properly, and then honing it, shining it. I'm sure knights loved their armor, especially if it saved their life at some point. They could probably point at dents in their helmet and say, yeah, I almost got that, didn't I? You know, that's where the sword would have otherwise cleaved their skull. And they've got a nice dent in their helmet, but better that than the dent in their head. And see, that's only if you wear it, though. See, police are issued these defensive jet vests and stuff, but they're uncomfortable. And so police don't always wear them. And that's why sometimes police are killed needlessly, because a bullet it penetrates where the vest would have protected them. We are no different. In order to have the armor on, you have to apply it. You have to put it on. And how do we do go about doing that? Through the daily disciplines of soldiering. And so when you know you're going into battle, you put your armor on. Now, it's not enough to have the armor. It's not enough to have the sword. If you cannot use your sword, if you don't know how to use it, it's useless to you. You pick it up and it's just so awkward, you can't wield it, you can't defend yourself, you can't parry a blow from an enemy. So you must be trained, and that's our next section. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from basic training you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, earlier we learned that he had learned the gospel from his grandma, and his mom, no mention of his dad or his grandpa or his brothers. Lois and Eunice are mentioned. Timothy also learned from Paul. He called him his son in the faith. But note this, Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. And from our earlier text, that the soldier of God may be complete. These are conditional statements right? This cannot save me if I don't know how to use it. My armor cannot save me if I don't have it on. They are able to make us wise for salvation, but yet they require our participation. They require that we be involved in this. And what did Paul say at the beginning? He said, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. So see, we are not only soldiers, we are active duty soldiers. And we are always, always active duty soldiers. What is the church on this earth called? The church militant. What is the church in heaven called? The church triumphant. See, there's a difference there. You do not get leave from this army. I'm sorry, you don't. The closest is this. The closest is this, where we pray that God would restrain the enemies of Satan, the, or the, uh, Satan and his minions, the enemies of God, from ever penetrating these walls, from being in our midst. This is the closest we get to taking a leave. And so it's just a brief period of time. When you enter back into the world, you are entering back into enemy ground that we must work hard to take, that we must work hard to retain the ownership of. Soldiers must be vigilant. They must be watchful. 
and we're always on active duty. The enemy never rests. And when we rest, we risk attack. When you think you've had enough of the Bible up to here, and I'm going to take a break from it for like the next week or month or year or however long you might choose to take a break from reading the Word or praying to God, you are now unarmed. You are lacking a defense. You are essentially abdicating your active role as a soldier in God's army. There is a favorite line I, I love from the Terminator, the original Terminator movie. I don't recommend you watch it. It's bad. But I like this line. It's where the fellow who has come back from the future to protect this woman, Sarah Connor, says this. She just doesn't want to take this seriously. And he says, listen and understand. That Terminator is out there. It will never rest. It cannot be bargained with. It cannot be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity. It doesn't feel remorse. It doesn't feel fear. And it absolutely will not stop until you're dead. That describes Satan. That describes every demon in Satan's army. They are terminators. They want our souls. I think it's appropriate that this message has come up on Father's Day because we desperately need fathers to understand that you you are the first line of defense in protecting your family from the Terminator. And you cannot rest. The Terminator will not rest. You cannot rest. You have to fight. And so that takes us to our third section, our conduct in this war. And let me read 2 Timothy starting at 2.24. And a soldier of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so this is about conduct. How do we conduct ourselves in this war? What is proper behavior for a Christian soldier? When I was in the service after three years, I got what was called a good conduct ribbon. It's the, pretty much the only ribbon that any four-year Marine would get. You get that one little ribbon right there. I was good. Now, I wasn't good. I just wasn't bad enough to have them take away my good conduct medal. But that's three years showing that I could stay out of the worst of trouble that I might have gotten into otherwise. In verse 24, it says, the soldier of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Being a soldier, or being a policeman for that matter, anyone in this position of authority in our society for our country does not give us, as a soldier, the right to be a jerk. We must behave ourselves as soldiers. We must conduct ourselves well as soldiers. I mean, even, even American soldiers 
sailors, servicemen, are to conduct themselves appropriately as Americans because they are essentially, every one of them, is an ambassador of this country. Now, true, you're going out there to kill people. You know, people will frown upon that. That's true. But, you know, they have a military too. Everybody has to protect themselves. And so, yet, in our conduct, we must conduct ourselves well. Uh, officers uh, get booted out for conduct unbecoming an officer. I believe, I believe, we exist as an independent nation in large part because of misconduct of British troops. Those of you that are in the history class might have read this recently because it, I think it was in your assigned reading for this Thursday. But uh, there was a British soldier, and they would supplement their income because they made a meager pittance uh, through the, being a British soldier. And so wherever they were stationed, they would try to find extra work. So a British soldier on a Friday went to a rope manufacturer in Boston. And the owner of the company was there on the, on the platform making the ropes along with workers, citizens of Boston. And the soldier came up and the man said, are you looking for a job? And he said, yes. He said, well, you can go clean my outhouse. And so the British soldier got angry, of course. He didn't, he wasn't offering him to have him clean his outhouse. He was telling him to get lost. And so the British man was offended. He, they got into a shouting match. He went back, he got his buddies, came back, big brawl at the rope manufacturer. It continued the next day. Lots more brawling. Now the brawling is expanding. They took a break for the Sabbath. God bless them. Monday, however, they came out in force and they fought, and that's the day of the Boston Massacre. And that Boston Massacre, I believe, was the death knell for peace between the colonies and Britain. It was now set on a course to war. It was just a matter of time. So the misconduct of one British soldier, really, in not absorbing that hostile act from a people that felt that they were under siege, which they rightfully felt, his refusal to submit to that act resulted in this huge war that lost them the colonies. So see, one action can be very, very profound in influencing our world. So now, as a soldier in God's army, how do you behave? Are you a well-behaved soldier? And so I have to define that a little bit. He must not quarrel. He must be gentle to all. Let's stick right there for now. So gentle to all, able to teach, patient and humble. The commentary, a commentary that I read, uh, reflected, expanded upon this term gentle. And let me read it. Affable, easy to speak to, approachable, not irritable, intolerant, sarcastic, or scornful, not even towards those who are in error, he must try to win them. Why? Why is this the prescribed behavior of we soldiers? The text goes on to tell us why. If, perhaps, God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So see, 
Our gentleness is a prerequisite to God's grace being administered in the lives of those that we love, those that we want to minister to. We might not necessarily love them. We might not even like them. But yet we, as an ambassador of Christ, want to win them over to him. Who is our enemy on this earth? Is our enemy unbelievers, Muslims, liberals, agents of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or the IRS? Policemen, politicians of an overly intrusive state, activist judges who are rewriting our laws. Are they our enemies? And I say, no. Paul didn't consider them his enemies, and we ought not consider them our enemies. They're not our enemies, yet too often we view them as that. Who did Paul say we are at war with? Right before he talked about the armor in Ephesians 6, he said this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So now who is it that Paul wants us to be tough with? The enemy. The spiritual wickedness in high places. Who is it that we're supposed to be gentle with? And let's read that again. Who are we being gentle to? Correcting those who are in opposition. They are opposing us. These people are opposing us. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So you see, when you're out there and you're dealing with the people of this world that could otherwise be such a pain in our rear ends, you're dealing with people that are captives of the enemy that we hate. They're not his soldiers. We're God's soldiers, but they're not his soldiers. If you've ever heard of the, the kid soldiers, the child soldiers in Africa, it's sad. They take these 11, 12, 13-year-olds, they pump them full of drugs, they stick M16s in their hand, and they have them kill their own villagers. It's just sad. So see, that's these people that we're dealing with, that we want to see converted, that God calls us to be gentle with. They won't be gentle with us. They'll treat us roughly. They're treating us roughly now all around the world. But this is God's world. It's his to rule. And he has prescribed this approach, which at times seems painfully ludicrous, doesn't it? But yet it works. He makes it work because it's his world. He's designed it to work like that. And he draws people to him like moths to a flame through the love and gentleness exerted by his children. So see, it's critical in war to know who the enemy is. We are soldiers. We are at war. Who is the enemy? I mean, this is like War 101. So see, you want to wage your war against the right enemy and recognize that most of the combatants you're dealing with 
are like these children soldiers who Satan is manipulating and controlling and snaring and then employing in his evil plan. I have heard, I'm not that great of a swimmer, I've never been a lifeguard. Anybody been a lifeguard? Nobody cares about people drowning apparently in our <laughs> congregation. No one's been a lifeguard. Okay, so at least none of us have drowned apparently. It's hard to save people when they're drowning, I've heard. Because to that drowning person, all you are is a flotation device. I mean, people drown all the time trying to save other people. They swim out there, best of intentions, but they don't have a plan. They don't, they're not been trained. And so they get out there and the other person just starts grabbing you and pushing you under, trying to keep their head above the water. They're panicked, of course. They don't know what they're doing. And it's sad. If they happen to survive and yet they've killed that poor person, I'm sure they'll have regrets about that, especially if they know them. But that is what happens when you put yourself out there, when you sacrifice yourself for others or potentially sacrifice yourself for others. Let me give you a story that's a little closer to home for me anyway. When I was a kid, um, I, would, I was standing in my driveway. We had a gravel driveway. We were in rural Ohio and the speed limit right outside of our driveway was 70 miles an hour. So, I mean, you better wait for the proper opening to get on in that street. Our animals often wouldn't though, they're stupid. And so we lost so many cats and dogs to that road. And so one day I'm standing in my driveway and I hear yelp and then scream, scream, scream. And here comes this cockapoo that we had named Benji. Everybody's cockapoo in the 70s was named Benji. And it came running down and hid under a pine tree. And my heart went out to poor Benji. And so I run over there and I bend down and he turns around and he bit me. You know what I did? I went back to the driveway, got the gravel and started winging it at him. How dare that dog bite me? Doesn't he know I love him? Doesn't, I know I, doesn't he know I want to care for him? No, apparently he didn't. He was stressed out from having just been run over by a car. But I didn't care. I was hurt. I tried to help him. He hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. That's often how we act. Maybe not as badly as I did, but yet that's often how we act. We reach out to help someone. They rebuff us. And then we just don't go near them for a while. You know, we kind of maintain some distance. We're only being polite after all. The last interaction didn't go so well. We're just giving them their space for a few years until they leave maybe, right? It's kind of how it works. This is the natural path of things. You have to fight against that temptation. Okay, and that's why it leads us on to endurance. And I'll read the last portion. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so we must endure hardships. That's exactly what Paul says. In your, in your handout, you see that the last three sections each have a red line. You must continue, must not quarrel, must endure hardship. Uh, Paul is very, very strong in what he's telling Timothy he must do or must not do. And so here he must endure hardships. What makes for a good soldier? And I'm serious, I'm in all honesty, what makes for a good soldier? I can think of two things right off the bat. You should be a good shot. If you're a rifleman, you should know how to shoot people. 
If not, you're not a very good rifleman. I wouldn't want you next to me. I mean, I'm counting on you to shoot the people that are coming at you so they don't get to me. I'm going to take care of this guy. You take care of that guy. So good soldier, good shot. I would say they're synonymous. Also, you should really know how to fight because if they get past your bullets, then you have to deal with them. And so now you want someone that's at least physically capable of dealing with this person that's attacked you. So I think a good soldier should know how to fight and they should know how to shoot. I think that's the basics. Now, an interesting thing though about war is that when you are in war, you really don't get to shoot and fight with many people these days especially. It's kind of weird. It's really ironic. So we're at war, but very few of us fight anybody. And then when we do fight them, we're fighting them kind of from a distance. Now back in World War I, it was a little different. In World War I, it was all this trench warfare in France. And so even those soldiers, though, there was a phrase that became popular after World War I, and it described war as this, months of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. That's war in World War I. So now, a good soldier is someone that knows how to shoot and fight, but there is, I believe, also an extension to that definition of a good soldier that has to cover all that time when you're not shooting and fighting. What makes you a good soldier then? I know. Having been in the service, you know these things. What makes a good soldier is someone who doesn't whine and complain all the time. I had guys in boot camp that just whined and complained all the time. So see, you don't want to be with whiners and complainers. You want to be with men. You want to be with people that can buck it up, deal with the difficulties that we're facing right here. And so you're marching, you're marching, you're marching, you're drilling, you're drilling, you're drilling. It's so boring. Yet, you have to do that to get better, to be a good soldier, to know how to fight, to know how to shoot. I thought I was something. I mentioned at the table a few weeks ago, I was an expert marksman in boot camp. I was really cool. Then I went out to the pugil stick arena and got my head handed to me. A pugil stick is essentially an enormous Q-tip. You hold on to it like this, and it's got these two big padded ends. They stick a helmet on you, and you go out there, and you face your opponent. And I was scared to death. But the first guy was more scared than me. Poof, I won. But the next guy was more determined. And so he came out and, and hit me in the head. And so I had one win, one loss, and I was, that was my career in pugil stick fighting. But you have to know how to fight. You have to know how to do these things, and you have to not complain about it. And in the military, it's all hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. One thing I wasn't prepared for was all of the things you had to learn. They had us memorizing stuff constantly the first few weeks. They don't give you your rifle until like week nine of 11. It, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I'm supposed to be here to be learning how to shoot, and yet all you are teaching me how to do is memorize my chain of command. Teach me about the history of the flag, the history of the Marine Corps. There was all this odd stuff that later you learn had a purpose. And the nice thing and the interesting thing was that they didn't just take us to a classroom. They always marched us somewhere out in the boonies. And then they'd just sit us down and train us for an hour. And then they'd march us back. I mean, you just had to go out to the middle of the nowhere, I guess, to learn when you're in the service. 
So, do you handle the tedium of daily Christian life well? You can fight well with the sword. You can be a good shot. But do you handle the duties, the daily duties of being a Christian without whining? If so, you're a good soldier. So you're a good soldier when you're fighting because you know this. You're a good soldier when you're living because you're not whining. You're ready for what God throws at you. You're not going to whine and complain to him. Now, earlier I mentioned uh, Jim Elliott. I mentioned how he was pursuing an AUG degree uh, approved unto God. And I'm sure most of you know that Jim Elliott was a missionary that was martyred uh, by the Alka Indians, and that was in January of 1956, he and four other men. He died at the age of 28. His wife, at the time of two and a half years, just died Monday. Elizabeth Elliott died Monday, and she was 88. So she had lived 60 years beyond Jim. But yet, what's interesting is that she was still identified as Jim Elliott's wife even after all those years, even after two, I believe, additional marriages that were very successful, very godly, and yet she's still identified as Jim Elliott's wife because of what he had done. And, of course, because she'd authored a few books about him. They'd met in 1947 at Wheaton. They weren't married for six years. I want to read to you uh, an uh, excerpt from a tape of a, of a speech that she'd given to, uh, I believe it was uh, at a girls' college, maybe it was back in the 80s. And so uh, this is a chronicle of the tape. I want to tell you a little bit about the missionary Jim Elliott. I knew him when he was a college student. As far as we women could see, he was unattainable. Handsome, popular, champion wrestler, president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, honor student, campus clown, but alas, a woman hater. That's what we thought. But we were way off. Jim Elliott was no woman hater. He had found when he was in high school that he could spend an awful lot of time and money on girls. They were very attractive, very interesting, but very expensive. I found out how resolute Jim was in his decision when the college yearbooks came out. We girls would hope forlornly that the man we had our eye on might put something besides his name in our book. Something sweet. Does anybody remember this? It was with great trepidation that I presented my book to Jim Elliott, asking for his autograph. And very fast, with his flowing rapid hand, he wrote, Jim Elliott, 2 Timothy 2.4. How long do you think it took me to get back to the dormitory and get my Bible to look up that verse? I was desperately hoping for a cryptic message, but what it said was not very cryptic. A soldier on active service will not let himself be involved in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at the commanding officer's disposal. So he was telling all the women, who, if he signed anyone other than Elizabeth's with this verse, uh, he was telling all the women who asked him to sign his book that he was not available. He was shutting it down right from the get-go. He was going as a missionary, and he knew that the odds of him returning were very low because he wanted to go to a tribe that was known to kill people. But what's interesting, and, and whether Elizabeth ever admitted to having pursued Jim onto the mission field, I don't know, but yet they were missionaries at a different 
villages, but eventually they did marry, and they joined forces to minister to these Alka Indians. And uh, then he was killed that day in January. Uh, but uh, here, all these years later, 56 years later, she's still known for having known Jim Elliott and been his wife. So see, I ask you, Jim Elliott essentially wanted to be the best soldier possible, and he wasn't convinced that he would be able to be a husband to a wife. And it took years for him to be convinced that he was comfortable having a wife entering into the mission field he was entering into, because it was very, very dangerous. But see, we face, in our culture, in our time, far less risks to our life than Jim Elliot did. I ask you, are you a good soldier? Jim was a good soldier. He was a great soldier. Do you train or do you complain? Do you wear your armor? Do you wield your sword? Do you conduct yourself well? Are you gentle? Do you recognize who the true enemy is? Do you strive to save the captives? Do you endure hardships well? We are all Christian soldiers, but we all must ask ourselves if we are good Christian soldiers. I believe we all know captives that we want to see rescued. That should be our heart's desire, to see these people saved. Are you doing your part to that end? Are you being gentle with that person, insistent yet gentle? Do you patiently, humbly correct anyone when they oppose you, or do you just want to win the argument? Because if we want to win the arguments, we lose the potential to free the captives. So pray God that we all will seek to free the captives and that God will grant repentance leading to salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are our God. You are our commanding officer. You have impressed us into your army. There is no exemption from this duty. And so we pray, Lord, that we would do this duty well, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would recognize in ourselves whether we are now good soldiers and we would purpose to be better soldiers. We pray, Lord, for the captives that we know that we would be gentle, that we would be humbly patient with them, And we pray that you would exercise mercy as we are uh, pouring ourselves out and uh, doing the duty as you've called us to do. And that your mercy would lead them to repentance and lead them to salvation. We ask you now, Father, to uh, put in our hearts a captive that we want to see freed and have us to be the best soldier we can be in seeking to free that captive. We pray this in Christ's name and for the sake of the growth of his kingdom on this earth. Amen.